Welcome in, everybody. Episode 102 of Force for the Podcast. Andrew May alongside Rob Trey with all of you. We are recording on Tuesday, May 17th. Episode will be released Wednesday, May 18th. Skipped last week, busy schedules, and obviously we had Rangers in the postseason. Uh, and so those games take precedence over everything. We are going to be recording a podcast while watching the games. They're too goddamn stressful to be doing stuff like that. But this will be a mostly Ranger-based show. We'll delve into some baseball as well. Pretty pretty quick one as opposed to some other podcasts. Not a ton of stuff going on besides the baseball and the hockey. Um, probably won't have an episode next week. Uh, Rob will actually be enjoying the beautiful sun and weather of Aruba. Actually going with my parents. I'll be sitting home. Funny enough, the day you guys are leaving, you know the next day is going to be 83 and sunny in Staten Island. Of course. Well, the weather's no. been here. The weather's been nice here. I mean, the exception of the rain here and there, at least we're starting to warm up. We're starting to get some temperatures that are, you know, a little warmer. So that's always good. Yeah. So you'll be there living it up. Hope you enjoy. Uh, we'll, we'll be here with you for tonight. And what a time to be recording. We had a pretty, pretty eventful weekend. Our New York Rangers pulled off the improbable. Coming back from a 3-1 series deficit against the Pittsburgh Penguins, they win the series in seven on their home ice at the Garden. What a moment. And I know we didn't record last week. Like I said, we I had a busy schedule last week. And then days where I was free, Rangers were playing, so we really didn't get around to, to recording. But I was saying in text threads, I was saying in conversations with my friends, I kept saying when the Rangers were down 3-1, I, I had a feeling – Game five was going to be the turning point in that series. If they won game five, I was confident that they were going to win the series. I seem to be in the minority, and I can understand why I was in the minority, because the Rangers played so poorly for the early portion of that series. And to be quite honest with you, Rob, I mean, we have eyes. We watch game seven. They were pretty much outplayed in game seven as well. It was Igor Shesterkin who kept them in it, which was huge to see because he had two stinkers in Pittsburgh in games three and four, he was pulled in both games. The crowd was trolling him, chanting Igor, rattled his cage, wasn't ready for the moment. And you started to have some question marks as to how far this team could go because there's some obvious defensive flaws. We've talked about how Gallant doesn't have that type of defensive structure in his scheme. So it's a little bit more heavily reliant on goaltending. And if Igor wasn't going to show up, it was going to put a dent in what this team is looking to do. But he came up with just an unbelievable performance in game seven. I mean, you look at it on paper, he gives up three goals. None of them were really his fault. If you want to think of any complaint, I mean, yeah, you had the Evan Rodriguez breakaway. He kind of got caught flat-footed. Could he have come out of the crease maybe and attacked Rodriguez? He could have. But besides that, I mean, he was making ridiculous saves all night long. Mika Zibanejad with a big-time shot from the slot to tie things up with five minutes left. And then Artemi Panarin with the game winner in overtime, who had a god-awful series. And Gallant even said it post-game. He just had a feeling that Panarin, who was playing poorly all series long, was going to be the hero. And luckily he was. And I'm hopeful that that's a turning point for Panarin, Rob, because, you know, it was an interesting thing. Because if you're a Rangers fan and you watch these games, you'd want to be thrilled about how well the kid line was playing. Lafreniere, Hedl, and Kako, they were unbelievable, but it's hard to get excited about the way they've been playing because you weren't getting anything from your veteran top three forwards. Kreider didn't do much. Mika Zibanejad was invisible for the first five games of the series. Panarin was god-awful, turning over the puck, couldn't handle passes. You know, that, that blindly throwing cross-eyes passes and just forcing yourself left and knowing that you could throw a cross-eyes pass, that kind of stuff doesn't work in the playoffs. But 
I mean, he showed up in a big way in game seven by scoring the goal when it mattered. And maybe it kind of prompts Panarin to shoot the puck more often because as much as he's kind of gained notoriety for how good of a passer he is, people tend to forget that he could be an elite goal scorer. He just chooses not to shoot the puck as often because he likes being the distributor. He likes facilitating. He likes being that winger with a center's mentality. But if he starts shooting more, Maybe he could develop into a, a go-to goal scorer for this team in the postseason. Listen, it's great that they were able to move on. It's great that they were able to come back from a, a three-to-one deficit. I mean, we were watching the game together at Grand City Tavern. Place was electric, packed out Ranger fans. We had a blast. We were super excited that they moved on. But it's short-lived because they got a really tough test with the Carolina Hurricanes, who own the Rangers in the regular season. They won three out of four. It's really a nightmare match matchup for the Rangers because Carolina led the league this year with least amount of shots on goal given up per game. I believe, on average, teams were averaging 24 shots a game. And for a Rangers team that was thoroughly outshot for most games in this Penguin series, they don't have that physical style of play with their top six. It's more reliant on skill. So when you have a team that pushes the issue, clogs a neutral zone on you and really pinches well, it's going to be tough to generate offense. And it's going to be up to Igor Shesterkin to kind of carry them again in this series. But, I mean, they have momentum. They got their first taste of the playoffs. They faced adversity. They were able to overcome adversity. And now let's see what happens in round two. But you got to be thrilled with the way that they responded after being down in a deficit and were able to come back and win whatever the circumstances were. I know they didn't play great in round one, but they came back and they won. They survived in advance. That's all that matters. And now we look on and look ahead to round two. Yeah, well, they've been resilient the whole year, Andrew. We've watched the majority of the games. It's a resilient team and they're never out of a game. And they're the only NHL team in history to not only just come back from three games to one, which they've done now four times in the past 10 years. And they've done it now three times to Pittsburgh, the other time to the Capitals, where they've come down from come back from three games to one. But not only just coming back from the three games to one, but in all three games, they trailed and had to come back. No NHL team in history has ever done that. So, look, you know, this I'm, I'm not going to say they're playing with house money because when you get to this point right now, Rangers have enough veterans on this team um, to make a little bit of a run here, and especially with the goaltender. And if they can just support their goaltender a little bit more, you know, look, he was under siege. Pittsburgh wasn't doing anything dynamic they just got to learn how to clear the crease the ranges they got to learn how to put a body on a body and they got to stop using the sticks at all times because one thing the ranges are always guilty of is too much stick checking and you got to put body on a body now look you know you go back to that penguin series was Sturkin good he was good was he himself no but that game seven he absolutely kept them in that game and made that a winnable game for them because yeah, some he of the saves best when it mattered the most. Some of the saves he made in that first period, going into that second period, were absolutely spectacular. They were they were I mean high high percentage scoring chances that they should have scored on Pittsburgh, and I think there were eight of them that were counted that should have could have legitimately been goals. Yeah, that he that he prevented. So he, he look he kept them in the game. He played great. Now. I think he'll be a little bit more calmer, especially going into Carolina where you'll have a hell of a lot more Ranger fans there, even though you, you know, you're hearing the thing, you know, the Carolinas now preventing any New Yorkers from buying tickets. So we'll see about that, but there's plenty of Ranger fans. 
living in the Carolina area over there. So you, the Rangers, Rangers will have enough support in Carolina. And I, and I kind of think this will calm you go down. Um, you know, you go back to that Pittsburgh series. We probably should have ended it sooner. We, we actually were giving them games. Game one, obviously, with the, with, the, with the overturned call on the goal, that should have set the whole tone. Probably what if we win that game, I'm sorry, I think we win in five. You yeah, know, I, I don't it, think the series It became goes a struggle from there, going against the third-string goalie, but neither here nor there. What they did get was a fantastic experience for these young kids because Kako played well. Lafreniere was probably their most consistent forward as far as just taking the play, putting the body on a body, uh, carrying the play into the zone. I mean, defensively, even on that winning goal in the overtime, he ripped the helmet off of Peterson's head. Now, whether or not they want to call a penalty, fine, whatever, but we've already rehashed this. Peterson had enough time he could have picked up his helmet and put it on his head. So be it. But that's another great play by Lafayette that kind of went under the radar until the Penguins started whining and bitching, you know, that it should have been a penalty. Meanwhile, that, pe- that same penalty, that, pen- that same uh, um, rule was put into place because of Sidney Crosby and his concussions. That's why same, that rule was put in place. And the same exact thing happened to them in the postseason last year against, yes, the, against Islanders. the Islanders. And yes. the league went out of their way to reach out to yes. the Penguins to clarify the rule, and they still didn't know the rule. So that falls on Mike Sullivan. Mike Sullivan, stop right. bitching. That's poor stop coaching bitching. on your fault. It's your own if, fault. Because the you know what? He's got to know the rules. The coach has got to know the rules. Right. He All these fans. Have, and not only that, he didn't have to pick it up right away. According to the rule is he if he has enough ample time to pick it up, within reason, and put the helmet back on his head. He didn't have to go skating off with it. He could have skated to it. But then you see a picture, a frozen picture, where you see that four penguins or five penguins surrounding three ranges. The fourth ranger was behind a penguin in the corner. So they had enough bodies to, to try and stop that shot by Panarin. So let's and stop after the, the helmet came off, they had an opportunity to clear the zone. And Jordan Marino turned the puck over. Turned the puck right. Nowhere in the rule book does it state when a player loses his helmet that Marino has to tor- or automatically turn right. the puck over either. Right. So let's not Too forget much crying. that. Too much Too crying. Too much crying. You know, if, you-, you know what? If the Penguin fans want to say, I see it all over, that that was a difference in the series right there. Well, if that's the difference, then you know what? Fire Mike Sullivan because it's his fault because the team should know the rule because it happened to them. No less, Pedersen, who's the person whose helmet came off, he was on the ice when it occurred against the Islanders last postseason. He was on the ice for that same occurrence. So well, stop with the whining. Look, Listen, at the end of the day, there were not one, not two, not three, four 50-50 calls that went in the Penguins' favor. And you also had the favorite to win the Vezina and Igor Shesterkin, who gave up a touchdown in two different games at your barn. You also had an opportunity to clinch the series in your own barn, and your goalie gave up the worst goal in playoff history to Chris Kreider in the final minute. So you had ample opportunities to win that series, and you didn't. So you know what? Yeah. Stop crying. Go Listen, back to you're the drawing up, board. You're, you're, up three ga- you're up three games to one. You're up 2 nothing at the Garden. You're up 2 nothing at Pittsburgh. You know, you're up a goal with five minutes left in game seven. You have plenty of opportunities to close it out. Stop bitching and moaning. It is what it is. Your injuries, everybody has injuries. Nobody feels sorry for you. So let's stop. You move on. But look, you, you know, Zabinic Jack got a little hot. And we set it for game six without Crosby being in a lineup. It kind of freed up Zabinijad. And he admittedly said, I need to stop worrying about the opposing team's line and worry about my own game. And that's what he needed to do. So he came up big in game six, came up big in game seven, scoring a tying goal with about five minutes left. 
to tie it 3-3 to set up the Panarin overtime winner. Um, so he came up big there. Look, Kreider had five goals in this series. But, you know, you want to see Kreider probably be a little bit more forceful, um, uh, you know, with, with, with his checking and with his forechecking himself. Because one thing the Rangers didn't do well in this series, and they better do it in this series, because, you know, Carolina is a different team than, than Pittsburgh. They're a much better team than Pittsburgh, even though Pittsburgh had two Hall of Famers in Crosby and Malkin. This Carolina team is deep. They're heavy. Uh, the Rangers have not matched up well with Carolina for the last two years. So they're going to need their top six to, to play above and beyond what their norms are. They really, really have to. And Panarin said it yesterday. He goes, it's my own fault. They were giving me shots. They were giving me space to shoot, and I wasn't shooting. So let's hope he, you know, he, he heeds his own advice here and, and starts shooting in his Carolina series because these cross-eyed, backhanded, blind passes is driving every one of us Ranger fans to the, to the nuthouse. And you just can't get away with that. And one thing about Panarin, look, he hasn't played well in any playoff series. This goes back to Columbus. Panarin's the type of guy that needs space. Now, what don't you get in the playoffs is space. There's not a lot of space to be had in the playoffs. So unless, Panarin's you, unless you're have playing to, in Gallant's defensive scheme. Right. <laughs> exactly. Panarin's going to have to be a little bit more physical here. Not that he has to be a physical player, but he's going to have to fight for the puck, fight for space a little bit more, get the opportunity on your stick, Shoot. Don't play with the puck and look for that pass. Just shoot. Put the puck to the net. Just put it, throw it to the net. In the playoffs, like Micheletti said it a million times, there are no bad shots. Zero. Get it to the net. So, look, like I said, this is going to be a tougher matchup. And I, I'm, I, I think Shesterk is going to have to steal a game or two here for the Rangers. In order for them to survive this series, I really, I think, really do. You know what? I, I'm, I'm not to be like an alarmist or like act like it's do or die, but I think game one has got to be the game he's got to steal. Well, that would that would set the tone yeah, right away. If of, you can, yeah. if you can win this game against Carolina, doesn't even need to be a shutout. But if you could steal the game three to two, even though you were outshot by ten to twelve shots, and didn't win faceoffs as much as Carolina did, or you were out hit. Maybe Carolina thoroughly outplays you in every facet of the game, special teams too. But if Shesterkin is able to limit the damage and you win this game three to two, sets the tone for the series, Igor settles in, right? Because I think game four in Pittsburgh was a product of game three. If he went into Pittsburgh in game three and he played well, I don't care how loud the crowd was chanting Igor in game four. I don't think it would have been an avalanche like it was. No. But I think it was just a combination. It was like a domino effect. If he's able to set the tone early in Carolina, like you mentioned, a lot of Ranger fans who live in that area now. I'm not saying that Ranger fans are going to overtake their arena, but it's not going to be nearly as hostile as Pittsburgh no. is. De- certainly so, not. Certainly so not. he's going to be a little bit more comfortable. And, hey, guess what? He got the monkey off his back. He found himself. Was he vintage Vezina winner, you know, putting up numbers, the same numbers Dominic Hasek and Tim Thomas did when they win the Vezina in the, pl- in the playoffs? No, he, he didn't do that in the first round. But not saying he needs to either, but save the shots you need to save. Come up with a big save every now and again, right? That's our main complaint with Georgiev. Sometimes you just need to come up with a big save, and he's never able to do it. Shesterkin yeah, has. Yeah. Come up with a big save when it's needed. Give your team the boost that they need, and, and you go from there. Now, there's a couple of things that kind of stand out to me uh, and it's a little bit further down the road, but just bouncing discussions off one another. I think it's a good question. Now uh, obviously they got Tyler Mott back in the lineup. 
And Tyler Mott was a guy that they acquired at the deadline for exactly these type of moments, right? They signed Barkley Goodrow and Ryan Reeves in the offseason for these type of moments, right? He's not the biggest guy in the world, but he's a heavy body, plays extremely well on the penalty kill. He's decent on faceoffs. He's a guy that does the work behind the boards, uh, behind the net against the boards. And we know that breakaways obviously aren't his strong suit, as you saw it his breakaway chance in the third period. But he does all the little things well. And he was out for an extended period of time. They finally got him back in game five, and it made all the difference in the world. I mean, his presence on the ice was felt, but they're obviously without Goodrow. Now, Gallant didn't rule out Goodrow for the entirety of the series. Whether he comes back, that remains to be seen. But hypothetically, if he does come back, this is going to be the first time that the whole entire forward group is fully healthy. Who do you see as the odd man out? Because not for nothing, Kevin Rooney is an exponentially better player, in my opinion, than Ryan Reeves is. But Ryan Reeves has made his presence felt on the ice a lot more than Kevin Rooney has. And it's going to come between those two guys. Because if Goodrow's healthy, he's going to be in the lineup. And Mott has done enough in his two playoff games where he's guaranteed a spot in the lineup. So one of those guys ends up being the odd man out. Who would you lean towards? Because I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Well, they'll probably lean towards sitting Reeves only because Rooney's a, Rooney's a guy that could win some face-offs for you. And although even if you do have Goodrow back, there might be a time we want to make, play Goodrow up for defensive purposes, maybe to replace a Vetrano on the first line, or maybe to replace one of the kids on the third line, move a kid up to the first line, maybe Lafreniere moves up to the first line. You kind of move Vetrano down and limit his minutes in a game that might be a 3-2 game in the third period. And you see Gallant, you've seen Gallant do that a couple of times with, with, uh, with Tyler Mott. He moved him up to the first line when they had a lead, and he played, he played it with Zabinijad and Kreider and took Vetrano off that line for defensive purposes, and that's the right thing to do. Now, look, it, it, you know, you can't worry about something like this unless it comes to fruition, because you never know. You, you might have another injury that's suffered. If the whole team is, is, is healthy and Goodrow is able to come back, and listen, I don't think he is because he hasn't even started skating yet, so it, it would be a long shot if he does, but maybe, look, in a game six, game seven situation, Maybe there's an opportunity for him to come back. If he does, I think they would probably sit. They would probably sit Reeves. He'd be he he wouldn't be needed as much, especially in a game six or a game seven where you know, look, you're not you're not fighting in a game like this. So you're not you're not worried about his presence. You get a guy. You got to get guys that can play defensive hockey. You got to get guys that can skate. You got to get guys that can win faceoffs. And I would have to think, even though. Rooney has really not been that good at all himself. He took a couple of really stupid penalties in this series. Um, I think he'd be the guy only because, look, he could win some face talk for you if needed. So and you I know what? to think it would be him. Here's another thing that I was thinking of, too, and it goes back to my point before about Shesterkin potentially stealing game one. And this is something interesting that I saw. The Hurricanes, if you count the NHL bubble season where the playoff field was expanded, this will be the fourth consecutive year now that the Hurricanes will be making it to at least the second round of the playoffs. And they've only been able to get past the second round once. And they were promptly swept in the conference finals. Um, in those three seasons so far, in the second round or later, they've scored one goal or less seven times. So 
the scoring has kind of gone out the window and been the prevailing factor as to why they haven't been able to advance. If you come out here in game one, now remember this whole core of players, Teravine and Aho, Svechnikov, Nik Nakis, all these guys have been on the team for these runs. Martinuk, another one. All these guys have been on the team for these runs. If Shesterkin is able to steal game one, do they start getting that feeling like, here we go again? Depends. I mean, you know, if it's a 45-shot game, you know, you know you're getting quality shots and it's just a, a goaltender that just was a wall. Uh, you don't feel that bad about it because sometimes it's just that that happens in a playoff series. Um, but, but the difference is, too, I, it, I don't there, think, I think there's a big about. difference between putting up 45 shots and only scoring one if it's Louis Domingue. But well, it's Igor Shostakovich. You, know, you have the feeling that this could continue. You look at teams that they had to play in those playoff runs. They played Boston. They had to play Tampa. These are all great defensive teams, great defensive forwards, great defense. You know, one to six. You know, the Rangers don't have that. That's the problem. There's a lot of space to be had when you're playing the Rangers. That's just the way it is. And the Rangers gave up way too much space to Pittsburgh. And speaking I mean, of Rangers, Anthony Duclair yep, just puts go. Florida up one yep, nothing yep. against uh, the Lightning in Game One. Yep. You know, so the Rangers give up way too much space defensively. Then they look they they just don't clear enough enough bodies out of the crease. So I don't think Carolina is going to have a problem scoring some goals. I don't think it's going to come down to them having trouble where you know the first three or four games they're they're being held to one goal, two goals, unless you know Igor Shesterkin is just completely doing you know uh, uh, his magic act in net. Um, and look, it's is it is it possible? Of course. And on the flip side of Carolina, they don't have Frederick Anderson still. And they have Auntie Ranta, who played pretty well against Boston. He wasn't great, but Auntie Ranta played pretty well. And when you have a team that limits shots, and Carolina is a team that does that, they actually gave up the least amount of shots on goal um, this season. It, that helps a goaltender a lot as opposed to the Rangers who are giving up 40 to 45 shots. A game. See, that, that's the thing. The, the Hurricanes were first in the league in least amount of goals allowed this season. And the mm -hmm. Rangers were Rangers second. Was second. The Hurricanes were first in the league and least shots allowed. And the Rangers, I believe, were 18th. Right. Just goes to show the goaltending. That's it. Yeah. Look, the Rangers, the Rangers season, the Rangers uh, – the Rangers season, the first half of that season, up until the trading deadline, was Igor Shesterkin putting that team on his back and the power play. Now, the other problem is Carolina is also number one in penalty kill. So, you know, there's a lot of numbers here working against the Rangers in this series. Uh, now, look, the one thing is the Rangers, when their backs are to the wall or they're underdogs or somebody tells them they can't do something, you know, the Rangers, like I said earlier on, it, they're a resilient bunch. So um, I, I kind of like the Rangers in that situation better. And you wonder if Carolina's reading the headlines because everybody's pretty much, you know, 70% of the people out there giving Carolina this series already. Yeah. You know, pretty much in five games, maybe six. Yeah. And, so, and that's what everyone was doing for the Rangers in round one. And they got off to a terrible start. Well, I'll tell you the truth, though. There's, there, there was a... I've read a, quite a few previews on the Ranger Penguin series. And I'll be honest with you. Most of them that I read had Pittsburgh winning the series. And anybody that had the Rangers winning the series gave them a 55% chance, maybe. You know, Pittsburgh was right there with them. You know, so I, the Rangers weren't a 65, 70% favorite like Carolina is in this series. You know, nobody's really given the Rangers too much of a chance here. So 
and I think the, that suits the Rangers better than anything else. But I think your point is well taken. Steal that game one. I mean, that's the type of game you could steal is that that first game, you could steal that game and win that game 2 1, 3 2 tomorrow night. It kind of, yeah, it could kind of set the tone. And it's important to get that first one off your back because then game two puts the pressure on Carolina. You know, nobody wants to go down two games to nothing, although it doesn't guarantee anything as far as winning a series, but nobody wants to be down two, two games to nothing having to go on the road. So we'll see. I mean, look, like right. I said, and, uh, listen, if, if they lose, if they lose game one, you kind of got to think to a point that their backs are up against the wall a little bit in game two, because you have to take a game in Carolina to yeah. win the series because Carolina has home ice advantage. So you got to take a game in Carolina at the very minimum, at least one to win the series. And I think you'd rather have your, you'd rather have your back up against the wall later in the series because you have more games under your belt and there's more of a feeling out process for the opponent. You know what you got to do to beat them rather than going into game two. Well, both teams are going to be making yeah. adjustments. Well, you have your back up against the wall. It's not a good spot to be in. That's why winning that game six, especially coming from behind two nothing to a team as young as the Rangers. And I believe they were like the second or third youngest team in the league. Uh, I think the Devils were first. But, you know, winning that game in Pittsburgh, a must win game where they were playing poorly to start down two nothing in that second period to come out and win that game is is so vital mentally to a lot of these guys on this team, especially the young kids. To, to prove that, hey, we can win a big game on the road here. We've done it already. We've, we've won three straight. So you're kind of hoping that that this whole run that they had against Pittsburgh, winning that three in a row, coming from behind all three games, kind of gives them motivation to say, hey, we could do this here. Yep. And, and it can. It certainly can because it, it gives you a hell of a lot of confidence. It really does. It does. Yep. Now, look, again, doesn't guarantee anything, but and you look at Carolina and their two top point uh, scorers were Jacob Slavin and Tony D'Angelo in that Boston series, both with eight points. None of the forwards, whether it be Svechnikov, Aho, uh, Teravainen, Trocek, matched that. They were, you know, all four or five point scorers. That's it. So, look, they, they got a good team. They got six X Rangers on that team, five of which usually play. Stepan hasn't played. I think he's either hurt. He's been sitting out, you know, you, you got Anthony Ranta, D'Angelo, Brady Shea, who's actually been, you know, one of their shutdown defensemen along with Brett Pesch, you know, so <laughs> believe it or not, Brady Shea has played well defensively, although in that Boston series, he had some uneven games there, you know, and it, look, it's going to be a tough series. The Rangers win this series, it'll, it'll, it's going to be in seven, I would think. They'd have to probably win a game seven on the road in Carolina, which I believe they're capable of doing. I don't see them winning this series in six. That'll be, I think, I think that's a tall task to ask this team because I just don't think that they're going to be able to uh, completely shut down Carolina. I just don't like what I seen in that Pittsburgh series. I didn't like what I seen. And again, this forward group is much better and much deeper than what the Penguins have. It is. And the Rangers couldn't stop Jake Gunsel. They couldn't find an answer to him. You know, after that, what you have? Evan Rodriguez, Brian Rust. I mean, these guys are okay. Gunsel's a very good player. So I understand, you know, but he, he had seven goals in this series. Uh, you know, at some point, you got you, you to stop him. You got you to make a conscientious decision to stop him. 
and they couldn't. They only had one line Pittsburgh working for them, that Crosby line. That's it. Yeah. After that, Malkin didn't even do anything. Malkin did nothing this entire series. Absolutely nothing. The he only time not- any of those other lines did anything were on the power play. There were a couple times where the second power play unit spelled the first one with 30 yeah. seconds left and they scored a goal. Besides that, yeah. the other lines were pretty much non-factors. It was just yeah. their inability to shut down that top line. And Carolina has they, – they go four lines deep. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's going to be the issue. I have to think that they have to get to Auntie Ranta. Look, Auntie Ranta is a good goaltender, play with the Rangers – he was very good with the Rangers. Uh, went over to Arizona, a bad team in Arizona. So you really tough to gauge him there. But he did play well when he first got to Arizona. And now Carolina, he kind of got thrust into this into this number one role in the playoffs with the with the injury to Frederick Anderson. And again, he played well in this Boston series. So, but it's still Auntie Ranta. Uh, he's is he great? He's not great, uh, but he can win your games as long as you have a team in front of him like Carolina does. So now another thing that I think is great, and you're seeing it from pretty much the the whole entire Rangers fan base. And I think you, you and I could probably be guilty of it at times too. You look at number one overall picks, right? Jack Hughes has been tremendous for the devils and he got locked up to a big contract. I mean, he's tremendously skilled. Austin Matthews was a number one pick. He's a 40, 50 goal scorer. Connor McDavid, number one pick best player in the entire league, right? All, all centers. I know where you're going with this. All right. centers. But you, we, you, you have lofty expectations when guys are drafted number one overall, and rightfully so. But, and for first-round picks in general, what you saw from the kid line was tremendous in this series. And for the most part, the kid line didn't do a ton in game six, game six and game seven, but Lafreniere especially was noticeable. And if you notice at the end of game seven – he was elevated to the top line. He had at times, Vetrano was moved down. He had him playing on the top line with Mika. He put Cop up there a couple times with those two. He well, was switching things the, up. The tying goal was one of the one of the lines that he juggled when he put Cop out there with Lafreniere. Yeah, yeah. And, and a Gallant buck was loose in the corner. Gallant normally doesn't do do things like that, but he did that that, that time, and it worked right. out. But like Lafreniere has been especially noticeable, and like I said, you have these lofty expectations when a guy is drafted number one overall, rightfully so. You see his highlight tape. You see how much skill he possesses. But I think Lafreniere, Kako, too, they finally embraced their role, and that role being that they're not going to be 50-goal scorers on this team in their current role. They've kind of embraced the role of being the North-South players and being the role players that they're supposed to be. Lafreniere has been probably the most physical forward besides Reeves in this whole entire series for the Rangers. And like I said, he was rewarded with some top-line playing time. Heedle has won me over too, incredibly physical, scored some big goals in this series. And the fan base is finally starting to embrace these guys, and rightfully so. You need to see guys who elevate their game in the playoffs. And I go back to those Rangers teams that were making runs every year. Back in 2014, right? The forward depth was so immense back then. You had guys like Brian Boyle and Dominic Moore who were healthy scratches on a nightly basis in 2014 because they had so much forward depth. Remember, JT Miller was first coming up. Jesper Foss finally solidified himself Der- as a third-line forward. Derek, Derek Dorsett. Dorsett was a healthy yeah. scratch, right? Brand- but, Brandon Proste, guys like that. But that those guys came up in the playoffs. Guys. Dominic Moore was one of the Rangers' best players in the playoffs. Yeah. Guess what? He got he didn't get ample playing time in the regular season, but when his number was called upon, he elevated his game. He was never a big-time goal scorer. He was a 10- to 15-point getter in the regular season, tops. 
but he elevated his game come playoffs. And got the winning goal in that got the winning goal in the Eastern Conference Finals game against Bay. Montreal. Montreal. Well, he, Montreal, but he also yes. had the uh, the big goal against Tampa Bay against too. Tampa Remember, Bay. Yep. deflected off his skate yep. in game yep. one of that series at the Garden Sunday so, afternoon. So Saturday afternoon game. I remember yeah. that. But those are the kinds of guys you want. The kid line really stepping up to the task. And they were able, in all honesty, Rob, they were able to kind of hold down the fort until the top line got going. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Crosby was out in game six and all of a sudden Mika had a great game. Oh, and he no. carried it over to game seven, too, yeah. even when Crosby came back. But Crosby wasn't the same. You could tell. He wasn't the same player. He was a non-factor in game seven. You couldn't even tell. If I told you he wasn't playing, you probably wouldn't have even known better if you weren't yeah. watching because he just was he was a non-factor. Yeah. But that kid line rose to the occasion, showed that they're ready for the big moment, elevated their game, embraced their roles, and now you're kind of looking at a real complete hockey team. Are they as talented as Carolina? No. Are they as deep as Carolina? No but they finally got their first taste of the playoffs and have embraced their roles. And like I said, the biggest thing is in their first playoff series as a core group together, they got not just the experience of playing in playoff games, but they got the experience of playing a triple overtime marathon. They got the experience of playing an elimination game on the road and winning it. They got experience from being down three, one, they got experience of playing a game seven in overtime. They got the experience of in game seven trailing late in the third period and not playing too nervous, trying not to make a mistake. Right. Like, well, he made so many, he made the mistake on the third. He made that blatant mistake on the pass on the blue line, trying to pass it over to Truba that, that gave the Rodriguez scored the breakaway, gave them the go ahead goal to make it three, two. I mean, yeah. the Rangers don't come back and tie that game and win it in overtime. Heedle's a goat. But, look, these are learning experiences. These kids have played important minutes. But let me go back to your point on Lafreniere and Kako. Yeah, you know what? They're wings. The three guys you mentioned, McDavid, Matthews, Jews, they're centers. I think they could develop a lot easier. And it looks – you know, and not only that, but these were guys that were drafted. They were on really bad teams. The Rangers were never as bad as what the Devils were – what Toronto was before Matthews got there, what Edmonton was before McDavid got there. So they were allowed the minutes. They were allowed the growing pains. The Rangers were kind of a middling team where they were always, no matter what, when you're playing in Madison Square Garden, charging the ticket prices, you're charging as much as they went through their rebuild. There's certain expectations that are, that are trying to be met. And when they named Quinn as the coach, you know, Lafreniere was there, Kako was there. I think there was a little bit too much where they didn't give them enough of a leash, Lafreniere and Kako, and learn to make mistakes. Instead, they were pulled from games. They were benched. And that's the reason why Quinn got fired, because you're not developing these kids by stapling them to the bench in a game that you and I maybe even expected to win or expected to make the playoffs in a season, you know, and you're stapling these kids to the bench. There's no learning curve there. And I think these kids kind of lost their lost their confidence a bit under Quinn and regained it more under, under uh, Gallant. Now Lafreniere did play up on that first line with Zabinijad and Kreider before Vetrano got there. And then they dropped him down to the third line. I think they kind of felt like his game was off a little bit. He played about 15 games on our top line and kind of equipped him, uh, equipped himself pretty well there. Uh, Kako was playing really well, but he suffered a couple of injuries um, he had the broken wrist, and then he had the knee injury at the end, which really wasn't that bad. But Kako was playing well. Um, so, look, these are kids that have played in big games in, in world championships in the juniors. It's, I'm not saying it's the Stanley Cup, but 
you know, to them, it's equivalent to playing in these playoff games. It's got that sort of intensity to it. So, and Kako and Lafreniere showed that they can match the intensity of these playoffs and Heedle as well. So it's good to see. And again, you know, we go back to saying it's their kids. They're still 20, 21 years old. And I'm hoping the Rangers could somehow get a sentiment. And look, uh, Ryan Strom's got to go. I've seen enough for Ryan Strom. He's done nothing in his playoff series. The entire series, he was pretty much invisible. You know, he still gets put out there on the the power play. I guess he's a little bit more valuable there. But you're not winning a, a Stanley Cup with Ryan Strom as your second center. I'd love to see Cop resign. I'd like to get another playmaking center somehow because you still got to get Lafreniere and Kako with the playmaking center. Heedle's not that. And we've said this before, Andrew. Heedle's more of a wing. He's a right wing as far as I'm concerned. I don't think he's that center guy. He doesn't drive the play. He's not a playmaker. I, I don't think he's going to make Kako and Lafreniere better. That's not going to happen. Guys like Zabinijad will make them better. You know, a center that has playmaking abilities will make them better. So that's, I, I knew where you were going with that the whole time, but look, we're, we're, we're thrilled. And one other guy we got to mention that we didn't yet is Keandre Miller. Really? I'll tell you, this kid's going to be a beast. Andrew, he had, I, I thought he had a poor game six. Him and Truba were terrible game six. They looked tired. They looked slow. Um, but let me tell you something. He drove that play in, in, in the overtime in game seven, with his legs, a stick check in a neutral zone, went around a defenseman, had to take the penalty, drew the penalty, and set up the goal. Panarin's goal in the overtime. But Miller, for the most part, six of the seven games was absolutely terrific. You, you notice him on the ice. Another guy, though, Andrew, another guy uses his stick a little too much. As, as he matures and gets bigger and he's getting bigger, he's got to learn to use the body a little bit more. And him and Truba with Lindgren and Fox are going to be huge in this series. And Fox has to wake up. I know he had a couple of good games here, Fox, but he had a couple of games. Game seven, he was not good at all. No, Fox was, no. was him and, awful. For, for regulation, Fox and Panarin were the two worst players on the ice. Yeah, terrible. And game five, Fox was terrible. Game six, he, he equipped himself. He came in, had the four-point night. He played well. But game five, he was terrible. He had a very, very uneven series. In fact, he was worse more than he was better for the most part. So well, and it wasn't, it wasn't only too. on the offensive end, too, because defense, he was doing some things po- yeah. poorly on the offensive end. But defensively, yeah. he was caught flat-footed sleeping yeah. on a handful almost of Almost lagging, almost lagging. Yeah. You know, lag, he got beat from behind a couple of times on goals. A couple of times, guys went around him, and he didn't, you know, there was no attempt to try and recover. So I am hope that gets corrected because he's going to be critical in this series. Yeah. And, you know, the other guy we need to mention is Ryan Lindgren, who was an absolute gladiator, absolute warrior, coming back, hobbled from the high ankle sprain. And let me tell you something. Is it any coincidence, Andrew, that he came back and the Rangers won three straight? No, not a coincidence at all. Yeah. Not a coincidence at all. That's a playoff type player. Again, one of the yeah. guys who's equipped for the big moment. Tough as nails, toughest guy on his team. And, yes. and, you, and go back to, you go back to Miller, right? And I know you said he needs to start learn he needs to learn to use his body a little bit more rather than the stick. But he took a massive leap about halfway through the season when he did start using his body. Can he start using the body more? No question. But he has started using the body more than he did when he first came up. And the scouting report kind of told you that he was elite with his with his stick checking when he was coming up. But he's a big kid that needs to learn how to use the body. I don't think it's any coincidence 
that he plays with an absolute freight train on his pair in Truba, and he started modeling that sort of style of play while playing alongside him and took a massive leap. Not a coincidence, in my opinion. That pair has been terrific. And now, I mean, I know you said Truba had the poor game six, but Truba was really good for most of the series. He had a really good season altogether, Jacob Truba. If you would have asked me before the season, because the Rangers have so many guys on big contracts that there's undoubtedly going to be at least one cap casualty at a certain point. It might not be this offseason. might have to be the offseason after. Truba for sure looked like the type of guy who was destined for an early buyout with the way he played in his first two years. With the way he played this season, he kind of seems like a mainstay on this team. Now, him and him and that him and Miller, that pair, has been terrific all season long, particularly in the second half and in the playoffs so far. Well, I said it, you know, I, I think I said this uh, in one of our earlier podcasts when the season first started. The problem with getting rid of Truber is that one day down the line, you're looking for a guy that's Jacob Truba. <laughs> right, right. Just you not know, on a uh, seven and a half million AAV deal. Right. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you had to pay him that much, but this is what you have to pay for a top flight defenseman. And he yep. gives you some offense, Truba. He gives you physicality, which you need. Well, you know uh, what the problem was? Again, it's it's lofty expectations. The year that the Rangers acquired him, he, I don't know how he did it, because watching him for three years, he's not that sort of player. But the year before we acquired him in Winnipeg, he ended up tallying like 45 points, 50 points. Right. He's, well, not he's, sort of, play. he's not that sort he's of offensive play. player. So when he came to the Rangers and he only had 28 points in his first season and everyone's like, well, where the hell is the offensive production? You know, not fully knowing what type of player he is. Now that he's in a role that better suits him with Fox manning the first power play unit, he's on that second pair, just right. playing that freight he's train style no of hockey that he plays. Play. That's the problem. But right, right. He's giving you he gives you offense when you need it. Hey, look, he came he, he scored that he scored the third goal in that game 6 on the back on the uh, on the backhand on the game right. 5. Game 5. On yep. the backhand after yep. he knocked out Crosby, uh he scored that third goal right after that on the backhand. So, he gives you offense when you need the offense. There's no doubt. I mean, to me Trouba's a complete player. I, I think it would be a mistake if they got rid of him. Um look, the Rangers uh, the salary cap's going to be going up over the next couple of years. Uh, hockey's doing well. They have a national contract now with TNT. And by the ESPN. way, did you see that the the Rangers Penguins was the most watched first round game in NHL history? Game seven or the game seven was the most watched first round playoff game in NHL history. Yeah. I believe it. I didn't see it. I believe it though. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's listen. And that's... it's it was the most watched non Stanley Cup final game in the last eight years, I believe. That Rangers Penguins game seven. So they were eyeballs. NHL is doing real yeah. well since they signed these national TV deals. And honestly, I mean, the one guy I have a complaint with is Steve Levy. He was god awful on Monday Night Football. I think he's a god awful hockey announcer. But for the most part, they've done a terrific job with their coverage, especially the intermission shows, right? I mean, the most popular show on TV and sports is the Ernie Johnson, Kenny Smith, Charles Barkley halftime yeah. shows, yeah. you know? They kind of have a similar little format with Anson Connor, Paul Bissonette. They have Messier. On and and Chelios on the ESPN well, the side. The problem is Bissonette hates the Rangers. Tockett hates the Rangers. Yep, and yep. It, it shows in that studio. And Bissonette is on. Well, record. why does is Tockett just mad he didn't get the job? Because he was no, a finalist Tockett, for the head coaching job. Oh, don't forget Tockett played with the Flyers all those years against the Rangers. Yep. So that's the reason why. And you know Gretzky shows love to the Rangers. Anson Carter shows love because Anson Carter worked for MSG and he played with the Rangers. And of course Gretzky played with the Rangers. So you know there's there's that little. And you could see when the Penguins lost that series, 
Bissonette and, and Tockett were not happy at well, all. I, I listened it, to uh, it translated. He has, he has the Barstool podcast, Spit yes. Chicklets, and yeah. I listened to. And, he hates and, the. Bissonette Honestly, hates him, the and, him and Ryan Whitney must have watched a totally different series. I think they got on and they said that the that the Rangers were gift wrapped these series by the officiating. I, I don't know what series they watched. Must have watched a different series. But they, again, blind Rangers haters. And don't forget, Bissonette and Whitney played together in Pittsburgh. I know yeah. Bissonette played more with Arizona yeah. over his career, but they played together in they Pittsburgh. Together so in the Pittsburgh. obvious bias yeah. is there. Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's no doubt. But meanwhile, you know, look, we don't have to justify what. You know how that how that series was refereed. Like you said, four for four on video reviews. Couple of questionable. The Gunsell one, the Gensel one, I thought was a high stick. Yep. It was clear they had two lines that were drawn the next day. They drew a line where the puck and a stick was, and a line where the crossbow was, and it wasn't close. So yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, the first the, and, the first game one with with Heedle's goal on. on well, what did I send drive, you right before so. we got on the air? Brian Dumoulin yeah. in his exit interview today said that he had a grade three MCL tear and he suffered it on the disallowed goal in game one. So let me ask you a question. If he didn't make contact with Capo with Kako, then how the hell did he tear his MCL on that play? That's right. what I want to know. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's incredible, but listen, they could cry over spilled milk, not over here. Rangers are going around two. got their work cut out for him. Game one is tomorrow night on Wednesday, seven o'clock. Now here's the million dollar question that needs to be asked. You tell your infamous Don Mattingly story all the time about how you booked the trip in June and the Rangers made it to the Stanley Cup. You know, unbeknownst to you, you didn't know that was going to happen when you booked the trip. So now you're aware of this and you still book a trip to Aruba and the Rangers are in the playoff. Haven't you learned yet that like the months of May and June should be totally off limits? Well, I'll, I'll find a way to watch it. I'm not worried about that. But one thing before <laughs> I forget, I wanted to say something to you. Game one, don't be surprised if Ryan Reeves isn't dressed in this game. I know he's an inspirational guy. I'm wondering if they, if they sit him this game and they play Rooney with Mott and uh, uh, and Hunt. I mean, the physicality is really – it just kind of plays into what Carolina does defensively. Hunt's speed might be an asset. I mean, he's not skilled enough. He mishandles the puck all the time, but that speed could be an asset. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that when you had actually mentioned – the situation of Goodrill came back late into the series who would sit. And I was thinking about game one and I'm saying, you know, this is a little bit of a, of a different series here, I think. Well, if, and, they, and if I, they sit Reeves and put Hunt in, then you have your answer as to who the odd man out is when Goodrill comes back. A hundred percent. But, you know, Pittsburgh is not a physical team by any means. And I think Gallant wanted to establish a physicality to this series and wear down Pittsburgh, even though, look, the Rangers were hitting at times, but they weren't hitting nearly as much as the rest of that series after the way they hit in game one. And at times, you know, Reeves was putting some hits on guys, but it just wasn't consistent enough. Um, and, and I'm wondering if he sits Reeves in this game one here and he plays Dryden Hunt along with Mott and Rooney and gets a little bit more speed and a little bit more, you know, athleticism in there. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be shocked. That would, I, that would not surprise me. It wouldn't. And again, I know Reeves is that inspirational leader. He's the guy that's calling out the lineup before the game. If anybody watches him, it's, it's hilarious. The, you know, the players themselves are trying to focus on a huge playoff game and they're trying not to laugh. Yeah. And if anybody hasn't seen it, go, go and watch it. I know it's on TikTok. It's all over the place. And then, you know, right before the doors open up and they're ready to come out, it gives you, you know, release us, Shesty. So, 
I mean, he's an inspirational guy. It's the only reason why I don't think they would sit him is because he's inspirational in that way. But listen, you could still be inspirational in street clothes because the bottom line is they're going to need a little bit more speed um, on that fourth line, I think, against Carolina. I really do. Well, you know what they got to do in this series, right? They got to do the cliche five things that every player says, right? They got to get pucks on net, got to stay out of the box, got to clear the puck, four check. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds cliche, but that's what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. It sounds cliche, but that's what you got to do. So, all right, well, look. So, gun to your head. How do you think this series goes? Um, not being a Rangers homer, I say Hurricanes in seven. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, look, I'm the same way. I, 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 I think I, I have a better – I have more uh, confidence in the Rangers even making this a series than a lot of people do. It's not just that people are picking the Hurricanes oh. to win. They're picking them to win going away. I think yeah. the Rangers make this a much more competitive series than people think. But I, I feel the same way. I it's think, a more I experienced team. Listen, we talked about the Penguins, right? And the Penguins were the more experienced team, but it didn't do them in because the Rangers are a much better team. They just had the experience. Carolina has the experience and the skill and the depth. They're just a much better team overall. So ultimately, I mean – you're going to need Shesterkin to have a series for the ages, I think, to win this series. Well, I told you, he's got to steal at least two games. He's capable of doing it. It's just a matter of yeah. if he does it. I don't think – and if they do it, color me shocked, that'd be over the moon. But I don't see a scenario in which the Rangers win this series and they thoroughly outplay Carolina all series long. I don't see that happening. No, that's the – they're not going to out, thoroughly outplay Carolina. That's not going to happen because – there's too many uh, um, factors that weigh into Carolina's favors here. You, you can't overlook the numbers. You can't overlook the season that they that they've had Carolina. You can't ever over overlook that you know they're 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 four line deep. Uh, the way they go, they can rotate four lines with no problem. Uh, another guy that's under the radar for them, who I always liked as a player, going back to his days in Florida, was was Vincent Trocheck. I, I I tell you, I I think that guy's a hell of an underrated player. Um, so he's another guy you got to watch out for a uh, physical defenseman, um, physical center. I should say that to play defense, play some offense. Uh, Escobar's heating up Escobar, now, finally. Yep. Finally, he was up. in a dreadful one yeah. 31 slump. Well, we'll get into the Mets and Yankees real quick after this, but I, I'm kind of, you know, all the, all the factors weigh against the Rangers. And this is what the Rangers, I think, love. I think they're sitting here. Okay. We have no chance. No problem. I don't think they're going to correct all the flaws they had in that Pittsburgh series, but I think they are good enough and they can match up with Carolina enough. And I don't think Zabinajad has to worry about Jordan Stahl, who's a good, solid play. He's a feisty guy. I don't think he has to worry about him on the defensive side as much as he did with Crosby, uh, which I think got into his head a bit. So I think it'll free up uh, Zabinajad. I think that second line, hopefully this, this, this opens a door for Panarin, that big goal. I think it's going to go down to a game seven, and I'm going to call my shot. I think the Rangers win it. And I'm not, right. being a, I'm not being a homer. I'm just looking at all the factors weighing against them and, and seeing how resilient this team has been the entire season. And I think that this Pittsburgh series, as much as they didn't play well in the series, Andrew, and they didn't play well, they weren't nearly at their best. They weren't nearly how they played in the regular season. I don't think they fix all their flaws here. 
but I, but damn it, this team has has shown us that they can get knocked down and get right back up just as quickly. And you know, you you can't put a, a number and a stat and a percentage on that. You can't. That comes from within the heart. And I kind of think that Igor Shesterkin in this series is going to be a hell of a lot better. I think I tell you the truth. I think what what freed him up mentally was that unbelievable cross, uh, that unbelievable rink, uh, um, uh, deep pass to Zabinijad on that on that goal in Pittsburgh. It was an unbelievable off his stick on the on the tape of Zabinijad's stick. Just that an incredible unreal. pass across the ring. It was just insane. And I think that kind of believe it or not, it wasn't a save that got him mentally right. It was that pass and the assist on a huge goal that Zabinajad scored that I think freed him up mentally. So I I, I kind of think we're gonna see the Igor Shesterkin that we've seen pretty much most of the majority of the season. And I and I think that's going to be enough to propel the ranges. I'm saying them in seven. I'm taking my shot. I'm going with a 3-2 win in Carolina to get the Rangers into the Eastern Conference Finals once again. So I'm going to call my shot. And again, I'm not trying to be a homer. My one problem, my one problem with your prediction is the 3-2 prediction. Got to be 4-2. Give me an empty net goal so that I can exhale at the end of the game. Don't make me. Look, it's not going to (laughs) happen. It's not done that easily. Can't it's a man not, dream. It's not going to happen. We're going to be sitting here. Save, save, shot wide, post. It hit the post. <laughs> yeah. Eight seconds left. Rangers try and clear it. They can't. D'Angelo keeps it in. One more shot. Save. <laughs> we should audition for a role. That was phenomenal. I'm going to so, have to put that on tape and start sending it out to some uh, radio and TV people. That was that was phenomenal. Now, uh, another question for you. If you could put an approximate number on it, how many times have you watched the replay of Panarin's overtime goal with Sam Rosen's call since the game well, ended? Well, I, I DVR'd the game. I DVR'd the pregame, the game, the postgame. So I've watched that about six, seven times. I watched that in the Zabinijad goal. And a lot of times I like to always kind of freeze it a bit just to see what was going on around the ice right prior to that goal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because obviously in the moment, you're not – you know, you, you're not ready for that. Right. So you, you kind of want to just see what was going on. So it's always good to kind of freeze frame it. And I still have it on my DVR. So it's always good to. And now here's a last question I have before we shift gears and go over to baseball. How long, you know, obviously we're on zoom. How long are we going to go until you fix the wire that's tangled upon your mouthpiece? Cause it's been pissing me off for like 30 minutes. Just, just it's, right here. it's like tangled up around the mouthpiece, like a little knot. Is it? Tur- tur- yep. There you go. There you go. I mean, we were in a deep-rooted discussion. I wasn't going to say anything, but my OCD was kind of kicking in there. And I, was I, got, I get it. I get the OCD thing. I get <laughs> so it. So now that, now that we got that out of the way, let's switch gears and we'll move over to baseball. We got the Mets playing a doubleheader today. They took game one against the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, three to one after rain out yesterday, uh, playing game two right now. Taiwan Walker's on the mound. Taiwan Walker was terrific last time out, uh, and he's doing pretty well so far. Just gave up a, a run-scoring double to Paul Goldschmidt, who – has torn up the Mets ever since he was a Diamondback. Nothing really you can do there, uh, but got himself out of further trouble. Eduardo Escobar seems to be heating up. The two new guys, Cannon and Escobar, both with home runs, which is a little surprising because that kind of brings me to the point that I was going to bring up about the Mets. They're doing great, right? Right now they're sitting 24 and 13, right? 
five and a half, six game lead in the NL East. However, it ends up shaking out at the end of the night with the other teams playing. Um, and it, they could have kind of even got a more sizable lead, but Philly came out of nowhere and took three or four against the Dodgers and quite honestly should have swept them, but they blew it at four, two lead in the eighth inning in that last game of that series could have walked away with a four game sweep. But I mean, the Mets are in a similar situation that they were last season, jump out to a big league in the division early, but they're kind of over the past week and a half, two weeks. Now they've just been playing 500 ball and listen, there's nothing wrong with 500 ball. It's, it's better than going in a stretch where you lose three of 10, but there's one glaring concern about this team, and it, to me, it's it's the lack of power. It's the lack of power. They've been generating runs, but there's only so many runs that you can generate per game without the long ball. Now, you don't need to be extreme like the Yankees, where you construct your lineup full of guys who are 40 home run hitters, and, I mean, it's working out well for the Yankees. they got the best record in baseball right now. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But to me, you there's, there's a lot more likelihood – of you generating offense when you have multiple ways to score runs. You have that power threat. Right now, I mean, the only guy on this team who's a home run threat is Alonzo. I mean, Lindor will hit his home runs, right? Can is an on-base guy. Nimmo's an on-base guy. We're going on I – I saw the stat. I believe we're going on close to 110 games now where Dominic Smith has not hit a home run. His last home run, I think, was, was July 3rd or something like that of last season. That's a long time without him hitting a home run. And listen, he's not a bona fide power threat. He's always been a gap-to-gap guy, but he's been awful. J.D. Davis hasn't supplied any sort of power. Escobar hasn't supplied any sort of power. And they're getting by. They're scoring some runs, but I just feel like there's something missing. And I think that that's going to be an area that they look to address at the deadline. I think they need another bat on this team. But the starting pitching has been terrific, you know, McGill obviously lands on the injured list. Trevor Williams came up, pitched the first game of this doubleheader. He did terrific. Four innings, a scoreless ball. It's all you can ask for for a guy like him. But this team is hanging around, but I don't know. I'm not being a Debbie Downer pessimistic Mets fan, but over the past week and a half, it doesn't feel like a 24-13 and 13 team. There's there's something missing. Do you Do you agree? Well, what did I tell you before the season started? I told you they needed another bat. And I want a Castellanos. You know, that's the guy I wanted. Well, I told Suzuki, you they too, a... who's been terrific. And I said, Sayu Suzuki's been terrific. That's the other guy I wanted. I told you they needed another bat in this lineup. There was no doubt in my mind. I knew they would need it here. I mean, look, it, uh, the problem is, too, is that Lindor is just in another funk right now where uh, – and it looks like they're going to tie the game here. Oh, that took a bad bounce on Jankowski. Damn it. And but running, Lindor's, so in, a, Lindor's in a bad funk again. As hot as he started, um, he's in a bad funk right now, Lindor. He's down at 230. Not, you know, he's he would hit with a little bit of power. I think he's got, what, six, seven homers now. But he's not the Francisco Lindor that we all expect. And we kind of hope that, you know, this was just the slump that he's in a bit. Um, look, I know you told me about Alonzo. He texts back and forth every time he gets an RBI or whatever he does. But he's another guy, man. That guy drives me crazy. I'm sorry. He drives me nuts. Because just with the key moments, and again, it happened in the bottom of the ninth of that game on Sunday, came up with the bases loaded two out and swung at two pitches that were god-awful. God-awful. I, I, you know, I, I just need to see more consistency out of Alonzo. And I need, to, I need to see him in the right spot in the big moments come through. I just don't see it often enough as far as I'm concerned. Dominic Smith is a problem here, Andrew. He's a problem because 
you know what's funny today? Today I was looking at Dominic Smith. First of all, eight of his 13 hits has co- have come in three games. He started yeah, he had the four in, for four game against the Phillies. He had two hits in the first game. He's played in 30. That's a huge problem. Yeah. And I think Dominic Smith's biggest problem is he's got the Alexander Georgiev attitude where I should be playing every single day and he's not accepting his role. I get it, but accept your role, young man. You know what I mean? You're getting some starts. You hit enough, you do enough, you'll play more, but you're not. There's a DH in play here as well. Well, also remember too that it's not just limited to the Mets. I mean, if if you make the most of your opportunities and you're not being utilized here, there'll be other teams that are knocking down your door for your services, and there's not. Because he hasn't produced. And I've always been a big Dom fan. Out of all the position players on this team, he's probably one of the guys I root for the most. I root for them all because they're wearing a Mets uniform and I'm a diehard Mets fan. But as far as rooting for personalities, Dom is probably one of my favorites, one of the people I root for the hardest. I'd love to see him succeed because I like I like him a lot. I just like his, I like not, his he's personality. Not, but, he's not playing with that personality that he played with a couple of years ago. He, he's right, not. Right, right. That's what I was getting to. You don't it, see that Something has changed. Something's, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he's, you know, I think the problem is he's seen the money that's being made by other guys. He doesn't want to be labeled as a utility type player or that sort of type play. But listen, you got to produce when given the opportunity like he did on, uh, on in that game last week when it came down to either maybe him being sent down or Cano being released and he came through with a four hit game. Now, since that point, that was a couple of weeks ago, he was like, oh, for his last 20, 22. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can't, you can't go in with that attitude day in and day out thinking that you're better than what you are. Maybe he's not, you know, maybe he's not, but I, look, I kind of think he's going to wind up being moved. I don't think they want to, because I think they do like his glove and I think they, they are still somewhat confident in his bat, but I kind of think at some point they're going to have to move him because having an unhappy player like him on the bench is just, it's not good. And you can see it's affecting him at the plate. There's no doubt. Yeah, but you know what? I, I don't – I, I think the thing that's that's kind of – they they obviously chose him over Cano. And at this point – Which is the right – I thought that was the and right And it was ball. the right move, 100%. And everybody was in agreement with that. But I think at this point, too, I mean, for the exception – and here we go, Goldschmidt with another ball in the gap, and the Cardinals are going to take the lead. This guy kills us. This yep. guy kill, he's killing us the way he normally does, and then some. He's taking over for Paul DeYoung because Paul DeYoung's in the minors because evidently the guy is not a major league player. He just turns into Pete Rose when the Mets are in town. Right. So he's picking up for DeYoung, too, so he's doing double the damage. I mean, this guy's unbelievable. But you also got to remember the Mets knock on wood here. For the exception of Jacob DeGrom and Trevor May, who obviously has a, a the arm injury, the stress reaction, and he's out for a while. For the most part, besides that, I mean, no one's gotten hurt. Nobody's well, gotten hurt. McCann, if you want to count him, I mean, you know, McCann's out. Whatever. I, I mean, mean, listen, it, you, you, the problem is you have a dead spot in the lineup with Nito and Mazika. I know Mazika hit the, hit the game-winning homer the other night, but, you know, that's a dead spot in the lineup. Both guys are hitting under 200. They're not that good. They're pretty decent defensively. They're average at best. Um, Nito is just a walking out. I, that, I've had enough of that guy. I've had enough of him. I really had enough of him. So they, they're going to have to solidify this lineup somehow, and I wouldn't wait to the trading deadline because right now you're getting a little lucky with the Phillies and the Braves uh, not playing well themselves, and you're able to build up a little bit of a lead. But as we know from last year, 
That can go away awfully, awfully fast. Let's see if Nimmo has an arm here. Hey, he's not tested him. Faked it. Deked it. Yeah. All right, good. Um, that can go away awfully fast. So I'm hoping that the Mets make a move a lot sooner than later. Go to one of these teams that, that really maybe or you have no chance at all of making a wild card and see what, you know, see what you could. i tell you the truth. The one guy who could, and they probably will not do it, would be Wilson Contreras. Well, you know what? I, I, as far as getting another bat, too, you know, the thing that really sucks, and I might be thinking way too far in the future, but <laughs> believe it or not, I think one of the things that's hurting the Mets is the fact that the White Sox have been so, so injury prone in the early season. Because if things were shaking out the way that they were expecting to, and the White Sox had stayed healthy, both position players and starters, you would expect them to have a 7-8 game lead in the division right now. At this point, you have teams like the Tigers that are 10 games under 500, and they're only trailing in a division by four and a half games. Like, everyone still feels like they're in it because no one's pulling away. And if you would, you were in a situation where a team was pulling away, some money on those teams might be willing to unload pieces. And I'm thinking, for instance, you got a DH spot on this team. You know it would be good? Call up the Royals, get a guy like Carlos Santana, gives you some pop. Like, that's a guy who would fit, but all those teams still feel like they're in it. So you'd have to wait a little bit longer to make a move. So yeah, I get that. But at some point, you know, teams realize who they are. They know who they are. And if it's a matter of them getting a prospect, uh, you know, because look, they're, they're looking at that White Sox team and they're saying, okay, as soon as this team gets right, you know, they, they're, they're going to go on their runs. It's still early in the season. But if they were solidified as a team that was out of it at this point, you might, you might be able to get a deal without there being a bidding war is what I mean. You know yeah, I mean? okay. I, I, I get that. I like get if that. the team doesn't realize that they're out of it until July 31st, then all of a sudden you got eight, nine teams who could use Santana services and they're all bidding against each other. I mean, right. I'm not, not bidding war where you're giving up top prospects for a guy like that, but you know, other teams that might have more depth in the farm system, which we've talked over and over again about how the Mets do not have. So that kind of puts them behind the eight ball if they're looking to make a move at the deadline. You know who doesn't have problems in their lineup? And that's the Yankees. I mean, this team is just... I mean, they were, I, look, egg on my face right now, the first 35 games of the season. I mean, Jesus, I didn't think they'd be this good. I didn't think it would be nearly this good. And right now, I mean, they're getting contributions from everybody pretty much. Uh, you know, and not only that, but their starting staff, which we thought would be their, you know, their downfall has been absolutely terrific, probably the best in, in, in the major leagues. Yeah. Severino has come back and played and pitched well. Cortez has just been a find. It's been incredible. Tyon, uh, Je- uh, Jordan Montgomery's been good. Garrett Cole is coming back to his usual self now. He's pitched well his last few outings. Their bullpen is always tremendous. Uh, so, and, and they're getting contributions up and down this lineup. You know, they have a few dead spots here. Catching position basically is defensive position for them, which is fine. Kind of for left, it doesn't hit a lot. He's hitting a little bit more now than he was in the beginning of the season, but he gives him defense up the middle. Uh, Aaron Hicks really hasn't done nothing with – he's done nothing with the bat there. Uh, but, you know, Aaron Judge has been hot the whole season. Stanton has been hot the whole season. Donaldson has been, you know, up and down here and there. It's just – to me, that they're winning – they're winning with their arms, believe it or not. I mean, listen, they're hit. Guys like Judge and Stanton, they're going to hit. But, you know, you look at this – this offense, Rizzo was in a slump. He finally broke out. Look, Torres has had a couple of big hits in the last couple of weeks, Andrew, but he really is not the Gliber Torres of old at all. No. Connor Falefa hasn't given you a lot with the bat. Josh Donaldson hasn't given you a lot with the bat. 
Aaron Hicks is giving you nothing with the bat. Joey Gallo is god-awful. I don't know how that guy even has a major league job. So, you know, you, again, the catching position, you're not getting any offense. It's weird how they're getting these runs and scoring, and yet, with the exception of probably Judge and Stanton, no other guy in their lineup has really been consistent or hitting above the back of their baseball card. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's incredible. Oof, so, gets out of it, Walker. Line drive, but right at Nemo. All right, limit the damage, down 3-2, score some runs. So but Yeah, it's, it's you incredible. Know, you got to wonder if this kind of – if it kind of uh, – um, look, the Yankees have played some a, – a lot of a lot of the teams they played have been weaker teams, but when they played the Torontos of the world and the White Sox of the world, they wiped them out. They wiped out two teams that come into this season was supposed to be better than the Yankees. Yeah. And the Yankees had their way with them with no problem. They took three out of four from the White Sox and two out of three from the Blue Jays the last time around. And even when they played the Blue Jays back in, in at Yankee Stadium, they took two out of three from them then too. So you got to wonder if the pitching kind of falters. And, you know, look, here's the only problem is that a lot of the Yankee starters aren't going into deep in games. They're giving you five innings, maybe six. Severino gave him six last night against a poor Baltimore team. You got to wonder if it kind of depletes their bullpen a little bit and ties out their bullpen. But right now, uh, you know, they got a six game lead up in the division, much like the Mets have. Uh, and you got to, uh, Toronto right now is in a little bit of trouble. And I'm going to tell you why. This was a team that was going to rely on their offense for the most part. They have a good pitching staff, not a great pitching staff, a good pitching staff. But this ball is deadened. You know, Vladimir Guerrero really hasn't done a lot this season. He's hitting 280. He's got four homers, 20 RBIs. Not having that MVP-type season to start. There's a lot of players out there. You know, you look at Tampa, and Tampa is, is kind of sticking around a little bit themselves, and you got to watch them. But this Toronto team, which I thought they thought they were going to hit a, lot, a hell of a lot better than what they hit, I think is missing Marcus Simeon, who gave them a hell of a lot of offense last year. Although they did bring in Matt Chapman, but uh, you got to wonder what Toronto's thinking to themselves right now, falling behind six and a half games to the Yankees. And look, it's is it an insurmountable lead that they can't come back from? No, of course. The Braves proved that last year, you know, when they did it to us. You want to know who I think the MVP of this team is? Of the Yankees? I think it's the pitching coach, Matt Blake. I don't think it's a coincidence that you're getting guys like Clay Holmes, who was DFA'd by the Pirates. But Who Clay are going Holmes through arms good. like it's nobody. Clay Holmes pitched good last year when the Yankees acquired him. Right. He but he kind of yeah. he kind of changed his repertoire yeah. a little bit. Yeah. He got a journeyman left-handed minor league reliever in Lucas Litke, who has been terrific for them. Miguel Castro yeah. has been one of their better relievers, too. Yeah, Michael King. Michael King is another one converted from yeah. what they thought was going to be a starter into a reliever. Chad, changed Chad his pitch repertoire a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think it's a coincidence. Again, it's an analytically driven guy that they took from the college ranks. I believe he was with the University of Michigan, if I'm not mistaken, before they hired him. So I think I don't think it's a coincidence. I really don't. I mean, I said the same thing about James McCann. I know he can't even hit his body weight, but I don't think it's a coincidence that all these pitchers last year were having career years at the same time once they were pitching to McCann, right? Stroman had a career year. DeGrom had his best year, and that's saying something with the Cy Young Awards that he was winning, you know? Taiwan Walker had a career year. 
Like all these guys were able to do, you know, it, it makes a world of difference. So that's a little bit of an unsung hero there, but they built themselves a nice little lead. The Red Sox have a world of problem. And I, I expected the Red Sox to be a lot better than they are, but their pitching is just, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. You look at the, the two, three, and four hitters in the Red Sox lineup. Each one of them is hitting over 325. Bogarts, Devers, and J.D. Martinez. Trevor Story is starting to get piping hot with the bat. Verdugo's a good hitter. They got good defense, but that pitching is just horrendous. They're 12 games under. Orioles are not competing. And, you know, the Rays are there, but they're not striking me as those Rays teams of late that are going to wipe the floor with everybody in that division. They certainly haven't separated themselves yet. So the Yankees have a nice little lead here, which is imperative because you really played a weak schedule. I mean, even though they're playing a weak schedule, I did not expect them to get off to the start that they have, but they built some up, built themselves up some some breathing room now. So, again, egg, egg on the face for both of us because it's a it's a tremendous start. Yeah, at least for the to the you know, for the first thirty five games, that's for damn sure. I wasn't expecting this, but no, not we'll at see. All. Like I said, there's another hundred and you know thirty hundred and twenty five games left, so we'll see what happens. So, all right, I guess we can wrap it up. Oh, we're quick on the basketball. I mean, that Phoenix team, my God, could you imagine that? How about how about how about Dallas? Two game sevens they have in the same day. They lose a heartbreaker to the Calgary Flames in the overtime, which I was watching a lot of that game, man. That was Jake Ottinger was just absolutely terrific. That was one of the best goaltending performances oh I've my ever seen God. in a loss. And then, you know, on the flip side in the NBA game with the Mavericks, I mean Luka Doncic was just unreal. At, at one point in the first half, he had just as many points as as a Phoenix Suns, and they had a 30-point lead at the half. Phoenix scored 27 points, and what does that do to the legacy of one Chris Paul? Yeah, You got to wonder. Here's a guy that's had a you know tough time in some of these, these finals. I said this the other day in a conversation with a couple of my friends in a group chat. I said, it's time that Chris Paul gets labeled for what he is. He's a fraud. He's a yeah. fraud because this is every single year, perennially in the playoffs, he either disappears or gets hurt. Every time he underperforms, when the playoffs end, there's always, oh, he had a groin injury. Oh, he hurt his quad. finger. Oh, he had an ankle yeah. injury that he, yeah. you know, like it's yeah. every single year. And that offense was different. I mean, they had two guys on the ball with Devin Booker, and Chris Paul was not aggressive enough to shoot the ball. Who else are you fearing on that team? There's really yeah. no one else you're fearing. I mean, who's their third scorer? Jay Crowder? That's not that's not really I mean, scaring you. De- DeAndre Ayton? You know, yeah. I mean – there's, but look, they they were a 63 win team in a regular season. They had the best team in the league, uh, best record in the league. Look, Dallas was a good team. They won 53 games. Dallas, they were no pushovers. They got a world class play in Luka Doncic. So, I mean, so it's not like they're a pushover. But to lose, to be down by 30 at the half, at home in a game seven, I, there's no excuse for that. And to me, absolutely uh, no is- excuse. It just goes to show you, like, basketball is a lot like hockey in a sense, where the game is so much different in the playoffs. Because, I mean, look at the Celtics right now. The Celtics probably, I'd argue, have like the fifth or sixth best team on paper in the Eastern Conference. And they and they weren't terrific until late in the season, where they really kind of separated themselves from the pack. Right. But you look at the guys who are playing meaningful minutes for them. I mean, you had a a, a 34-year-old, a 37 or how was he, 36, Al Horford? 36-year-old Al Horford scoring 34 in an elimination game against the Bucs. You have Peyton Pritchard playing 30 minutes a night. You have Grant Williams, 
who was basically a lockdown defender and an interior offensive scorer when he played at Tennessee. He knocks down seven three-pointers in game seven. I mean, the contributions they're getting are unreal, and they're probably the best defensive team in the playoffs, which well, is huge. We, we were saying that, uh, you know, at, at the time when they were playing the Nets, that it, I love the Celtic team. It's a team that actually was, was built the right way, mostly through the draft for the most part. And guys um, like Pritchard and Williams that I just mentioned, they're both second-round picks. Right, second-round. Al Horford came in to help, you know, yeah. obviously via trade. But still, look, that's a team. And they go 10 deep. So that's how you win. And every guy knows their role. They all know their jobs. You know, guys like Marcus Smart. I mean, he's hurt right now. He's hobbled with an ankle injury, and they're going to see if they can get him. And I'll tell you what, if they don't get him back, that's that's a tough injury. And that's look how tough injury for look them, how, too. Look how Boston lucked out. Markel Fultz goes first. Lonzo Ball goes second. Jason yep. Tatum falls in their lap at number three. At three. Yeah. Yep. Terrific. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, it doesn't happen for the Knicks that way. And the Knicks, <laughs> the Knicks spot is uh, solidified here. The draft lottery is tonight, and the Knicks are picking 11th next year. Yeah, I didn't think they have much. They didn't have much of a chance to move. They up had anyway. a 78% chance to get the number 11 pick. That was the pick that they were pretty much mapped out to get, and oh, they a, got it. So the they'll... top, the top four order, or the, I, I don't know if it's the order or if it's just the teams that are definitely in the top four. Who's got the number one pick right now? Did they say? Oh, they do. Yep. The Magic have the first pick. The Magic have one. The Thunder have two. The Rockets have three. And the Sacramento Kings have four. So, but I mean, that's, uh, that's interesting. It's interesting to see how that shakes out. Oh, well. Uh, all well, right. We'll wrap it up. We will. We will indeed wrap it up. So we'll. Won't be back with you next week. Like I said, Robbie will be in Aruba, soaking up the sun, having some cocktails, finding a bar at night to watch the Rangers. And I'll be uh, here in Staten Island. Beautiful Staten Island. Beautiful, more beautiful in Aruba. But, you know. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll regroup with you after that. So we'll see if by the time we record next, we'll probably – well, what is this? Today is Tuesday. Right so, yeah, by the time right we record next, Day. this Rangers Kane series will be over. Yeah. So we'll have a winner and we'll either be giving a Eastern Conference finals recap or we'll be giving uh, a Rangers year in review recap. Um, we'll do some more baseball talk, get closer and closer to training camp and OTAs for football. So a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff in the works. Um, and so We'll enjoy this week off and, and we'll be back with you in two weeks. As always, you can follow Rob on his Twitter account, Rob OG six. Follow me on my Twitter, Andrew may underscore 21. You follow the show on the show, Twitter account at four score, the pod on Twitter. Uh, until we talk to you next time, everybody enjoy the warm weather. Looks like the hasn't been that cold recently, but we've had some rainy days looking at the forecast. Looks like the rain and the cold is behind us. And we're finally starting to get in some warm weather, 75 and above for pretty much the next four or five days with sunny all five days. So let's enjoy it. Everyone get ready for summer. Uh, thank you for everyone for continuing to listen and continuing to support. For Rob Dufresne, I'm Andrew May. We will see you guys next time.